The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Thursday, September 23rd, 2021, 5 o'clock p.m. on the dot because Ben's in charge today. And not even my jawing away could keep us from the blue go live button right at five o'clock. Um, we are not allowed to have fun anymore. We're not allowed to have horses on the border anymore, but we are allowed to have Sarah Longwell back to discuss her new podcast. And Thank I just want to say this is the first ever episode of In Lieu of Fun. This is episode 514, and this is the first time we have booked a guest on a different podcast because Sarah and I were recording the French Village podcast this morning. And if you listen to today's episode of the French Village (laughs) podcast, you will hear Sarah plaintively note that it had been a while since she'd been on in lieu of fun. And I said, how about this evening? And she said, I have to check with my people. I am not making that up. She really said that. You can go uh, listen to French Village podcast and find out. Um, I said it as a joke. I said yes, it as a joke I because I had to beg you to come on today. I was like, Ben, I'm promoting a new podcast and you haven't had me on. And like, come Dude, on. You are Dude. so welcome on, on, the Fr- on, on the French Village podcast on In Lieu of Fun. You are now a fucking podcasting sensation. Your new podcast is like ranked up there with Megan Kelly and Glenn Beck on the Apple friends. on the Apple Podcast charts. Is that um, true? You're yeah. friends with Glenn Beck. No. <laughs> oh, sorry. No. <laughs> you can forget about it. Shut up, Ben. <laughs> so here's my question. Uh well, first of all, but since since we need the sense of the podcast to ask the question, uh, let's start with uh, what is this podcast and how is it different from the other three podcasts available on the internet? I mean, like I know there's not a lot of you know options in podcasting. How does this podcast differentiate itself, as they say on Passover, from all other podcasts? Right. So I understand that we don't necessarily need more podcasts in the world. Uh, However, uh, you know, of all the things I talk about, in fact, we did like a mock focus group on here. But of all the things I talk about, the biggest reaction I've gotten is I get is from the focus groups. Like people are really into them and they want to know what people are saying. And one of the things that I've always felt like a little uncomfortable with is that I'm always filtering what people say. And I, once we moved from doing them in person, sitting behind the glass, uh, to doing them by Zoom, ever since then, I started to be like, I wonder if I could get people to just sign releases so I could play pieces of their actual audio, because it's so much better when you hear real people say it. And so I've been kicking this around in my head for a while. Like, how do I 
give people more of a genuine um, interaction with the with the focus groups and not just have it be through me. And also, you know, I I do them so often uh, that it felt like kind of a waste not to do something with them other than just have them inform my strategy, which is which is what they do. Um, and it, it meant that I would be able to open it up. Like right now, I don't do things like um, just talk to a bunch of Democrats and have them score Biden. But we're going to do that. Uh, and and so anyway, I just I thought it would be an interesting concept. I knew it was going to be uh, I'll tell you one way it's really different is the secret podcast, the next level uh, that I do with Tim, secret with JVL. Uh, French Village with you. I mean, the most preparation that I do for any podcast is the French Village with you because I watch two episodes. Yeah, of French you got to watch the French Village. I got to watch the French Village. Though much of the audience doesn't bother. That's that's right. Uh, but but I don't. I mean, like JVL and I sit down and we're both in our pajamas and it's always like eight o'clock in the morning and we have coffee and uh, you know there's just not a lot of prep. This requires a pretty high level of production and a lot of prep work because you got to take you got to figure out what what from the focus group you really want to pull out and discuss. Um, and so it's been a much bigger challenge from an editing standpoint, but it's a pretty good product, I think. I think it's pretty interesting. I think the, my big question was, does anyone want to listen to me for 45 minutes without sort of a JBL, Tim, you know, Ben Wittes person? So I listened to the first episode, um, although I, the as I told you this morning, uh, uh, in I think I had the... I don't know why, but my the version of it that I downloaded cut off abruptly at the end, and I think I didn't. I probably lost, I don't know, eight or ten minutes of it. But um, I thought it was pretty riveting, actually. Um, but one thing that I was struck by was that you often cut out of it the questions that you were asking the focus group, and so you focused very much on their comments, but less so the dialogue that was taking place between you and them. And I wonder if the, 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 I, I wonder if like part of what makes people so interested in these focus groups is not just what these voters are saying, but in how you're interacting with them. So I notice in the chat, uh, the Reverend Dr. Hillary Livingston observed that she doesn't think she could do what you do in these, like that she'd have the patience to do what you do. Um, and I, I, I do think one of the reasons that people are so interested in your focus groups is because of you, actually, and because of your interactions um, with the members of the focus group. But I thought the discussion was superb, and I will definitely listen to the second episode, which is my ultimate test for a podcast. Does does the first episode I listen to compel me to listen to a second episode? Well, the the second episode is with Bill Crystal, um, so hopefully there won't be a big you know drop off in quality uh, because and 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 we've already recorded it uh, and we're we're editing it now. You know, I did Amy Amy Walter is the first guest on the first one. Um, and I, uh, I, I'm, I don't know. I was like super flattered that she said yes. But to be fair, I've been allowing a lot of people to sit in on the focus groups for a long time, um, and so now I have something I can ask them it for in return. It's like okay, but now you got to come on my podcast and, and do analysis with me. I will say one of the it's it actually is a technical challenge 
because I am asking the questions often, like I'm the one moderating, to have more of me and my interactions and the way I'm talking to people is confusing, actually, for a listener, because they're also listening to me do analysis. And so one of the things that we had to really figure out is how to distinguish Sarah that's talking right now on the pod, you know, on the podcast doing analysis versus Sarah talking to the focus group. Um, And so we do cut out a lot of my interaction with them just to keep it clean and not confusing to the listener. Um, A couple of questions. So this is awesome. I'm so excited to listen to this. Um, And the second thing that I was kind of wondering as you were saying that it's a lot more work and it's a lot more editing. um, Do you, so are you actively interviewing people right now or are you going back and looking at tapes that you previously recorded? And like, I guess kind of what I'm wondering is like going forward, do you think that it will change your reactions at all as you do the events live and you hear people's responses? Do you think you're gonna make a note of like really good responses and to have them like like flag them in the in the moment um for the for the podcast uh yeah those are good questions i mean on the second part um i i've actually been having other people in my office learn to moderate the focus groups because one of the things that happens when i'm moderating them there's 10 people on your screen and you spend i spend just too much time processing their facial, like how they're responding to like, and tracking like, okay, who haven't I talked to in a while? Who do I need to bring in the conversation? Are people nodding with this point, you know, to get a sense of it. And so I I oftentimes, I'm not sitting there clocking who just said the most interesting thing for the podcast. And so uh, I actually, what I've been doing, because I also don't want to take, I don't want to think about the podcast as like the reason to do the focus group. Doing the focus group, because I'm trying to understand different segments of voters and how they think about politics. So what we do is we record them and then I go back and rewatch them for the actual parts that we pull out about the podcast in terms of filming them and, or, you know, doing them in advance. We've been, we've been getting releases from people now for a while. Um, and we've kind of been picking and choosing, uh, you know, we're doing it as a limited series. And so we wanted to set it up where people would find the groups relevant potentially. So like the last group we're going to do, we haven't done it yet, but the last group we're going to do is in Virginia um, of undecided voters uh, before the, you know, the election, the governor election in Virginia. Um, but the one with Bill actually did take place before the one with Amy, and I recorded it and had him watch it. Uh, and, and you know, it, it, it can feel slightly like, like we're talking about, we talk about Afghanistan a little bit, which feels sort of out of the news cycle. Um, but... I don't know a better way to do it. You have to recruit really far in advance to get a group. And so to try to like exactly plug them to the news cycle is a bit of a challenge. The better thing is just to find a group that's both representative and interesting and like like saying clearly what they mean and not a lot of stammering around. So I am interested in the feedback loop between the members of the focus group itself and the podcast. Um, when you have done these in the past and you have not, you know, had a national podcast in which you play the sound, the uh, people are speaking into a dark room, right? I mean, they're talking to you, but... The bigger this podcast gets, 
the more likely it is that somebody in it will have an awareness of the podcast or at least of the fact that focus groups end up, uh, you know, of this type end up being discussed on, you know, national media. Um, have you had any response from the members of the focus group to the initial episode, you know, saying like, hey, I, I you know, loved that clip you played of me or I hated it or why did you put me on there? I didn't sign a release for this shit. What, uh, what has the reaction been, if any? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll tell you, it's one of the things that I've always been a little anxious about where, but I mean, so Frank Luntz, uh, started doing this thing during the pandemic where he would go on TV and they would just show actual clips of people in the focus group. Like they would just show the big Zoom focus group and the people would know, like they would have signed a release and they would know that it could be used in that way. Um, and we also, you know, we are now specifically going and saying like, we can use this publicly and getting people to sign off for that. That being said, I mean, there was a period of time where I was doing a lot of TV during the election I was moderating all my own groups. Like I was moderating all my own groups. And I was like, I wonder if someone will ever recognize me. They did not. Uh, and like nobody nobody ever recognized me. Now, one person It's did. a big country. It's a big country. One person in Pennsylvania who I, so one of the things that happened during the election is I was in, I was in very, I was in six swing states recruiting from this through the same firm and I started to get repeats. And so at some point, Somebody was like, I'm going to Google. They keep showing ads from this group, Republican voters against Trump. I'm going to Google that and Google Sarah, like Sarah. It's like somebody did put it together. And then she like um, found me on Facebook and like messaged me. And, you know, we had like a fun messaging exchange. And she was like, this is really interesting. And, and I ended up actually connecting her with some reporters. because this But was that was retroactive stalking, not prospective. I know who this person is. Yeah. And I mean, look, the bottom line is like the, the short answer is I'm not famous enough. Um, and that that's just, but is it, is it possible that, boy, I hope the podcast gets so big that I, I'm, I'm, I'm too famous. That you're out of a job. <laughs> no, I just, I'll have somebody else go back to, I used to, I used to not moderate. I mean, I used to just have somebody else do it and I would sit behind the glass. I had a professional moderator. But part of what happened is that I couldn't get the answers I wanted from a professional moderator because they they were so big picture and they weren't like drilling down. And I was like, I was always sitting behind the glass texting them being like, ask a follow up, ask about this, ask about this. And eventually I had to be like, you know what? Uh, oh, and also it was just the Zoom. Like when it went to Zoom, I was like, well, I guess I'll do them myself. Um, so anyway, I'm not famous enough for anybody to pick me out. Nobody's 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 collared me yet. No, I'm actually I'm surprised by that. Actually, I mean, Ben gets recognized, but I mean, and he's on. Like, I mean, I feel like although yeah. although much less frequently now that I don't do television regularly. Um, yeah. You know, it it is amazing how if you take yourself out of the public eye the uh, the amount of recognition goes down right away and um and you know i'm i'm more apt to be recognized by my voice uh because of you know rational security and the lawfare podcast than than because of my face these days um i you have guys know who bob lonsbury is by any chance ever heard that yes. name Yes. Yeah, why? 
because he's like a he was um he was a radio jock in like in Rochester growing up and very conservative and had like a whole like radio show and I remember like I he also had like a column in the local paper um oh not the person I was thinking of then oh okay sorry anyways super conservative kind of I think that like yeah anyways um when I remember uh, we were sitting as you would in like small town Rochester at the air- at the airport at the gate and like everyone's kind of sitting there and people just start talking to each other because it's such a small, it's like a fairly small town. And so people are like asking where everyone's from and talking. And this guy who I was like almost certainly Bob Lonsbury just like was like staring and it was before you ha- could put headphones in or something. And he was just kind of staring. And I remember he was just like, it was so obvious he was trying not to talk because he knew that the second he started talking that like people would recognize his voice and so like he just kind of sat there really like you know kind of trapped at the gate while they like got ready to board and like all these people were talking just like not participating rudely in like this kind of conversation anyways just kind of funny um i've always thought that that would be like a very weird way to be identified or called out um but so Sarah, I'm curious whether the fact that you know that you're going to use the audio changes at all the way you do the focus groups in the first place or wh- or whether you have to sort of work to to prevent that from happening. Not really. I, I tell you what, the my cadence of doing focus groups, I do them multiple times a week, every week, all the time. And, uh, and like I said, I, like we, I just jumped off one, um, but I had somebody else moderating it. Um, and which we've sort of just started doing, uh, so that I can be more engaged listening, but I don't know. I I don't think I could change it at this point. I just do it the way that I do it. And, and, you know, uh, I'm so interested in what people are saying, like, I'm so interested in who they are and how they think about politics and, like, what their level of engagement is that uh, I'll go back and, and watch the tape and think about, okay, how would this – and the thing about the podcast is I, I'm not saying I'm not trying to make a good or, 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 or interesting podcast. I am. But I'm, I'm also more thinking about it like, what am I learning from this and how do I communicate to uh, – how do I let other people, like, hear what I'm hearing – so that they can learn uh, this too. Because I just, again, hearing people in their own voice working through something is is fascinating, I think. And also, like, our politics is so toxic. And we hate each other all. Everybody hates each other so much and doesn't want to listen to each other. I mean, so many people who are listening to the podcast are sort of saying, like, Oh, I expected not to be able to take it. Like, I wasn't going to be able to listen to them. It was going to make me so upset and so mad. And, like, that's never, it's not never my takeaway. Sometimes that happens. But usually you come away from it being like, if I consumed the media that they consumed, if I lived where they lived, like, I bet my perspective would be different too. And I do think it helps us understand each other. I think it helps people break out of their bubbles of information to hear how other people are actually thinking about this, to hear them not sound like monsters, because they don't sound like monsters. They sound like normal people grapple, like who have different information uh, than you might. And I just think it's humanizing, it's helpful, um, and that's really what I'm trying to bring to it, less like, uh, 
hey, listen to this crazy thing this person said. Do you, I mean, so there's a very, I think we've talked about it before, but there's, uh, it, it was debunked and then it was uh, reproven. So um, I don't know if you've heard about this study where it was basically uh, a PhD student, oh God, Michael, um, something French, it's just totally escaping me right now, but he was a PhD student and he did under, uh, I think, David Green at uh, Columbia, who's a statistician, uh, the, uh, like a study in which they gave individuals uh, they tested focus groups of individuals, and then they had people go and canvas their homes in person and talk to them to see if they could change their mind. I mean, it ended up being actually completely faked data, so like that was really bad. But a bunch of people was, was it was got picked up in it got you're you muted Ben. Um, it got picked up in science. It got picked up in science. Was it, like this guy got it like out of like a professorship at Princeton, and then there was this huge kind of like uh expose that he had made it all up and they removed like they like he like i don't know he's like disappeared into obscurity but my point is is that basically that then it replicated and it was true that basically it is much you have a much greater impact talking to someone especially if you are of the uh the group or the or the or the the, I don't know, tribe, I guess, of that you're purportedly trying to change their mind on. Like, so if you are a woman talking to someone at their door, like, and you say something to a woman who has said that she's pro-life, you can say, and you say, well, I just want to tell you like the story of my abortion and like start telling her and humanizing it for her. You will change the needle the most amount. And unlike television or other types or like news stories, the needle will stay moved. Uh, later in like more into the future. So like, I'm just kind of curious, do you ever think about that as you're kind of going through, like, so you're talking about kind of getting people to stop being so polarized. Like right now you're just measuring the polarity and like why it is and what's going on with it. But like, what about trying to go like on the offensive in that, in that kind of battle? I mean, my hope, I mean, that was the whole theory behind Republican voters against Trump. I mean, when I started the focus groups, um, you know, I started them in 2018, I want to say, um, when I was thinking about, uh, could we primary Trump with a Republican primary challenger? And also I was just like, what is going on with the Republican party? Like, I feel like I don't understand the voters anymore. Like, I don't understand my own party. And so I started doing, um, the focus groups to connect myself more, think about, you know, could you primary Trump? Where was the party? Uh, and it morphed over time into, you know, what became very clear. I was showing uh, groups all kinds of ads, the ads that would just crush Trump, lamb everything that goes viral on Twitter. Um, and with the tribe of disaffected Republican voters who didn't like Trump but weren't really Democrats, that stuff was horrible. It had the inverse effect that people think. The, they, they, it totally drove people back into their corners and so I started to be like, well, just running ads that are like gotcha ads on Trump, like didn't, that's not going to work. That's not going to, not with this group. Like it might, it might, it might have other effects. It might help turn out on the Dem side. It might excite the base. Like that's fine. But don't say that that's going to move, you know, soft, moderate Republicans. And so what worked with them and what became clear is we started experimenting with testimonials, which was somebody saying, I've been a Republican my entire life but I cannot vote for Donald Trump again. I voted for him last time, but I cannot do it again. And that was 
that was our vat. And we got a thousand testimonials. We launched with a hundred, but ultimately we got a thousand from people who were lifelong Republicans. Many of them had voted for Trump in 16, who were explaining why they could not vote for him again. And, and it was for a million different reasons. Um, but that permission structure, that, that, tr that message coming from your tribe, you know, when people talk about who do they trust, the number one thing that they say is people like me. Uh, and they don't mean me, Sarah Longwell, people like themselves, right? People they can see themselves in. And so that was, we built RVAT out of, out of the focus groups. And I'll tell you now, part of what we're looking at is the Republicans who were leaving the party um, and telling those stories because there's a great many uh, who have realized, and there's a bunch of people who haven't quite realized, uh, but there's a, there's a cohort that have realized that the Republican Party that they were into in the early aughts uh, and, and 80s and 90s, it's just not there anymore. And so we call them red dog Democrats. They've been Republicans, but now they're they're Biden voters, but also more Democrats. And then there's like another level over of people who still kind of feel like Republicans, but they're also they also like kind of think Paul Ryan's going to come back and save the party. Uh, and they don't they haven't quite figured out that like it's Trump's party. It's Marjorie Taylor Greene's party. And how do you. And so you take those people who are leaving and you have them be the ones to explain to the people who are like, but but maybe but maybe John Kasich will be the nominee. You know, like so you have, I, I yeah. was super interested in that part of the show yeah. because it seemed to me that they are where you were about two years ago or 18 months ago. Um, and, you know, like for those who don't remember 18 months, two years ago, you and Bill were trying to get somebody to, you know, could we get a, a Hogan to run a primary campaign, right? Is there somebody we could get um, who would be, who would, and it's really only when that effort failed that you guys were like, okay, there's nothing more to do. And so I'm in, I was interested in your reaction to that group of people. Do you look at them as basically this is a major opportunity for us because these people are kind of where we were very recently? Or do you look at them and say, gosh, after everything that's happened, they still think Paul Ryan is going to ride in on a white horse? Um, and, you know, like, it's freaking hopeless. They're, 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 you know, delusional. Like, so, a gr like, if you say there's a measurable percentage of the Republican Party that is not MAGA, but is also not left yet, and is kind of, you know, thinks the grownups are coming back. How do we look at that? Yeah, so, anyway, I don't think they're delusional. And the reason I would never call them delusional is because it was like two and a half years ago that I was in their position, like exactly right. And so I just think, and I'm super plugged into politics. So for a bunch of people who aren't that plugged into politics, they have what I refer to uh, as a Reagan hangover. The Reagan hangover is this idea that, well, the Republican Party, it stands for a limited government and freedom and, uh, you know, like low taxes, uh, fiscal responsibility. And... Like, 
no, it doesn't. That's not that's not it anymore. But like they there's right. So like you're not you're not clocking everything. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people in the kind of the swing cohort. They don't know who Marjorie Taylor Greene is like they've never heard of her. And I do think that one of the things that 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 Republicans do much better than Democrats do is Republicans, because they actually don't have that many affirmative policy things they're trying to advance, they can spend a lot of time defining Democrats by their most uh, extreme members. And Democrats have not been able to return that in kind and help people, because when you do the swing voters versus the MAGA voters, they sound like they're in different parties. Like, the swing voters are vaxxed, think the insurrection was bad, do not think the election was stolen, uh, the MAGA voters definitely think the election was stolen. Half or more are never vaxxed. And the ones that are, are always kind of apologetic. Well, I had to get it to go on a cruise. They think the insurrection, they're like, don't call it an insurrection, number one. Number two, it was Black Lives Matter and Antifa that perpetrated it. I mean, they're not comfortable. They're not in a comfortable political coalition anymore. And so I think the operative question for me as a strategist is, okay, well, how do you wedge those people off? And the thing is, is it's not just on one side. So yes, they don't feel comfortable in a political coalition with Marjorie Taylor Greene. So who's the Democrat that they feel comfortable in a political coalition with? Because it's not AOC, it's not Elon Omar, it's not Cory Bush. So if you're in Pennsylvania, this is why, you know, if you ask me for my take on politics, it's going to be like, in Pennsylvania, they should really nominate Connor Lamb and not John Fetterman, because Connor Lamb's going to have a much better time picking up these college-educated suburban voters. And the thing about it that's so important is, number one, these people vote. They vote. They are reliable voters. They will always vote. Uh, and number two, if you get them to vote for a Democrat a second cycle, you start to really move them into your political coalition for good. If they kind of just, if they're, if they actually- I don't know, Sarah. I know some- some some neocons who to this day will look you in the eye and glower. I am not a Republican. I'm a Scoop Jackson Democrat. <laughs> uh, a Scoop Jackson Democrat. Uh, a reference all the kids get. Um, yeah, I mean, look, th there's no doubt. There's no doubt that it's hard to get people to leave their tribe and to forsake a certain part of their identity that says I've always been a Republican. That being said... There are these tectonic plates that are shifting in our politics. There's this overall trade that's going on where, uh, you know, Democrats are increasingly losing uh, white working class voters who used to be kind of the core unionized. This is one of the things that I think is wrong with Biden. Biden's used to an old like demographic of, of, of Democrats who support them, these like coal miners and, you know, pits people outside of people in Pittsburgh and whatever. And actually that's not who's supporting him anymore. Those people are culturally MAGA. They don't care how much he spends uh, and to do anything for them. They are not going to give him credit. They are much more focused on critical race theory, Dr. Seuss, um, you know, and, and Biden's Biden's ba real base is like college educated suburbanites uh, and, and, and black people like that is, that is all of whom are quite, are quite a bit more moderate than sort of the very progressive wing of the party. Uh, and so, you know, I think if you're going to build the biggest, broadest pro-democracy coalition possible that can hold off this dangerous version of the Republican party, you've got to think about how do you, how do you pick up all of these sort of college educated suburban voters who voted for Mitt Romney, voted for John McCain, but are looking around being like, this is not what I signed up for. 
What do you think about kind of, so something that struck me about what you were saying was how, like how the, the moderate voters or like the swing voters that are Republican, like react really poorly to be shown to being shown kind of the the videos or the ads of like that are really slamming Trump and slamming MAGA. It reminds me almost of like how like it it reminds me of how people decide to get tribal or defend something from an outsider, almost in the same way that if you picked on like my brother, like I'd complain about my brother all the time. But the second you said something about my brother, Sarah, like I would be, you know, I would defend him to the death type of thing. Um, and I wonder kind of if that is a, if, if uh, I don't know, I just, I wonder like what you could do kind of with that model at scale. Like right now, it seems like you're telling me that like the way to do it is to kind of to give them these testimonials. But besides, do they respond as well to testimonials of strangers that identify uh, like as Republican? Um like being shown to them in ads or does it have to be like in person? Does it have to be someone that is like, has something else about them that is other than a Republican that they identify with? Does that make it stronger? Um, look, I, 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 there's not a silver bullet for how you convince people to like shed their previous, you know, ideological home. I think that the thing about the testimonials that really works and the bigger picture is how do you set broad narratives how do you create a broad sense for people that a lot of these college-educated suburban voters are leaving the party because the party is too extreme to govern? Like, that they've lost their minds. Like, this is what you hear a lot of times from, there's a lot of negative polarity, right? So a lot of Republicans uh, who hated Trump, they're like, well, I can't be a Democrat. Democrats are crazy. They don't have a lot of specifics. Democrats are just crazy. So at what point do, are you able to say, you know what? The Republican Party gone crazy. Um, and and you're hearing more of that from the swing voters where it's like, it's not just Trump. They're all Trumpy. And this is so when I say high level narratives, what I mean are so the testimonials are a bunch of Republicans saying, I'm out. These guys have these guys have lost their minds. But you're doing that at the same time that we Trump is out there putting forward his nominees, the people that he has handpicked and he has said, this is who I endorse for Senate in Georgia. It's Herschel Walker, uh, who's a lunatic. Uh, it's Eric Greitens, who tied a woman up in his basement and blackmailed her with it and scammed the veterans. Who among charity. us hasn't on occasion tied a Me. woman up in the governor's Me. mansion? Wait, yeah, I need to go <laughs> Google this. What is this story? It's Eric, a true story. Eric Wright. Really? He, he's the yeah. he's the Senate candidate. He's one of the currently. So he, he's running in a prayer. Josh Mandel is another one in Ohio. Absolutely. Absolutely running like a crazy person. Wait, um, did he tie a person up too? Yeah, no, he like, got impeached and resigned before he was uh, tried and removed and somehow managed to escape indictment and now is going to get elected to the Senate. Yeah. But I'm just to- saying... We've all done that on occasion, you know. So, so this is so this is my this is my big this is my big point, and I want everybody. I want to make sure that I'm being really clear about it. Is that what you want is to have narratives converge? Lots of Republicans are saying these people are too extreme to govern. Uh, Trump still owns the party. Help people understand it's not Paul Ryan's party; it's Trump's party. Just because Mitt Romney is in the party does not mean it's Mitt Romney's party. It's Trump's party, and the reason these people want to leave is because of Trump. So you make it Trump's party, and at the same time, then you elevate. Like, why did the why did in 2010, after Obamacare was passed, when they got when Democrats got shellacked, it was like 60 House votes. 
They actually did okay in the Senate. Do you know why? Because people like Claire McCaskill won because Todd Akin was the legitimate rape guy. And, then and like, don't forget the witch. Don't forget the witch. Christina O'Donnell was the, had, had won a, she was an early canary, Tea Party canary in the coal mine. Uh, and so she had beaten this moderate Mike Castle, who would probably still be senator today, and Chris Coons would not be if she had not mounted that primary challenge. Uh, and so, so Democrats did better than expected. I think that opportunity is is potentially there. Democrats have to do a better job of governing, though, for that to work. And they've got to nominate people that those disaffected Republicans will vote for. But, but I've got a question for you before we go to audience questions. You're describing a set of three conditions that will either mitigate Democratic losses in 2022 or perhaps prevent them. One is, I think we can say pretty certain, which is that the sort of cray-cray fringe of the Republican uh, Party retains the center of gravity of the party and determines who the nominees are in key races. The second is that the Democrats show reasonable governance skills, which looked pretty probable until, um, you know, up through July, until Afghanistan and Delta, and now looks much iffier. And the third, which strikes me as the least likely, is that you have a, a consistent streak of Democratic nominees uh, that are uh, respectable and moderate themselves. And so people don't have, uh, again, speaking from not from my point of view, but from the point of view of your focus group participants, that you don't say that they don't look at it and say, well, the Democrats have you know, the Republicans have nominated Herschel Walker, but the Democrats have nominated a bunch of AOCs, right, which they see as a kind of parallel. Um, and so my question is, do you need all three of those conditions or do you just need two? You need all three. And in, in the environment we're in for Biden, in terms of the just the, the math is not on their side. They're going to lose the House literally just through redistricting. Uh, and I think, you know, and, and when I say the two, the two that you have to have to get anywhere is um, the crazy people on the right and Biden doing a good job of governing. COVID's got to be under control. Um, Afghanistan's got to be long in the rearview mirror, which, you know, we're still far away. They could get it together. But if we were where we are right now, before an election, I would be like, hey, guys, I hope you're ready for Mitch McConnell to be, um, you know, majority leader again. Kevin McCarthy's going to pick up 40 seats like it's about to be a bloodbath um, because one of the biggest indicators of picking up seats is a who's the party in power, because Americans love to check the party in power. Uh, those are just the fundamentals. And then two, what is the approval of the president? Uh, and right now it's not good. Um, so uh, but I think you need the third element because the places where the the map is right so the where you've got to try to pick up seats like eric Greitens, if he gets the nomination which republicans will try to stop but if he gets the nomination and the person running against him as a democrat isn't like a former republican eric Greitens is gonna win 
because Missouri is very red now. Uh, and Trump's going to go down there and stump for him. And people don't hold hold tying women up in a basement against you like they used to. Uh, Herschel Walker may very well win in Georgia. He's now they've got a good chance to beat him if he does. But like I keep doing. So I was doing a focus group the other day with some Georgia folks. And I said, what do you think about Herschel Walker? And they were like, love Herschel Walker. These are swing voters. Love Herschel Walker. Because he was a legend down there. And when the moderator brought up that he, uh, you know, hey, like he's had a lot of mental health problems. He, he, he used to play Russian roulette with himself, you know, with a bullet in the gun. I mean, the response was like, well, he kept winning. I don't think you play Russian roulette with other people, but yes. Uh, uh, do you? Can you? I thought it was always about like doing it for yourself. That was well, like the whole I mean, point. I don't know if you've ever Sorry. seen the movie Deer Hunter, but uh, there's a way that you can make other people do it that's incredibly scary. Uh, anyway, nope. <laughs> but my but my point is is like his celebrity alone. Like like one woman was like, well, he probably would stop doing that. <laughs> like if he was senator. Like that's just like they weren't they weren't horrified. They didn't think it was an insane idea that Herschel Walker um, could be the senator. So anyway, uh, you know, I, I just. If, if, if the alternative is insufficiently acceptable to swing voters, uh, I think that, I don't think you can get it done. I think you need all three conditions. And, and people might say, boy, Sarah, you really think they need to thread a needle there. It doesn't sound very likely. The only thing I will tell you is that going into 2020, I knew we needed either Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, or Biden to pick up the swing voters and that the best case scenario at Bloomberg at some point, but I was always uh, more skeptical of Bloomberg than others. But uh, so, you know, if it had been Bernie, like we couldn't have done our thing. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked. Um, and so I've seen it happen. So I'm, I'm just, I, I feel like it can. And Democrats should have learned some lessons from 2018 and 2020. Their moderates win, the progressives don't. All right. Let's go to audience questions. The first question is from Paula, who is in a public place and therefore can't come on screen. What do you feel your responsibility is in a focus group when it comes to sharing thoughts on life or death questions like the vaccine? I know you don't want to inject your opinion, uh, but is it? Uh, but it is a subject that can impact the lives of the members of the focus group probably like no other. What do you make of it? Do you have any obligation to tell them to get vaccinated? Absolutely not. Absolutely yeah. not. Um, I agree with that. You know, I... Uh, also, why would they listen to you? Well, it's funny. I did have a group not that long ago. At the end of the group, when I was kind of saying goodbye, they were... One of the guys was like, so who did you... They were like, can I ask you a question? Are you a Republican or a Democrat? And I was like, well, actually, I'm a, I'm a Republican. And I was like, I'm one of those rhinos you kept talking about during the group. And, uh, and, and he was like, well, who did you vote for? You didn't vote for Joe Biden. And I said, well, uh, if you pay me for my opinion, I would be happy to give it to you. Uh, but right now, you know, I'm paying you for your opinion. And so uh, I, I just, I treat it, look, people say all kinds of things in the focus groups that I disagree with, some of which I find horrifying. Um, and, but the point is not to, the point, it's it's like anything that's science based, I guess. I mean, I don't think of myself, but it's political science. I guess I just I think of myself as somebody who's there to learn, to understand how they think about it, frankly, so I can use the information uh, in ways that I hope is helpful. But I don't feel like it's useful to argue with the people in the group. That's not what they're there for. Yeah. 
I think that's right. Eric Berg, the floor is yours. Uh, Eric is uh, a uh, Idaho Demo uh, County Democratic Party chairman. Um, uh, FYI, Sarah. Hi. How are you? Hey. Good. So, um, in light of being a county party chair, uh, are there efficient or worthwhile ways for small groups, i.e. like a county party, to do focus groups themselves? Or would a party doing it themselves taint it to the point of not being helpful and it should be outsourced? Well, you just hire a moderator. I mean, I just think people who haven't done it, like, again, you should not convene a group and then, like, go in there and argue with them. Um, but you're... Like, it's not, it's not a lot. Most of the facilities, like, people ask me all the time some of the technical questions. Like, well, where do you find these people? Like, I don't find them. I go to a focus group facility that does this for a living. And half the time, they're recruiting people to be, like, taste testers. They're like, here's the new Chili's menu. Tell us what you think about it. And so they have these massive lists of people that they use for all kinds of things. And then, but they have all this information on them. So you can go and say, like, I want Trump voters who think he's doing a somewhat bad job. Uh, and that's who I would like. I would like 10 of those, please, from Wisconsin. Um, and so you can go to that facility and say, here's the screener. Here's how I'd like to figure out who's going to be in it, because I'm trying to understand this particular demographic. And then they could, they mostly, usually they will supply you with a professional. Um, and you write something called a moderator's guide, um, where you just say, like, this is what I want to learn. And then you give it to the moderator, and they mostly read it, which is why... Uh, I will just say for my purposes, eventually I was like, I need to be in there to ask follow-ups uh, directly because I, I wasn't quite getting what I wanted. But lots of people can. All right. Mr. Wattenbarger. You have the floor. Oh, there I am. Oh, okay. Hello. Hi. Uh, ben, I just want to tell you something. I, I want to thank you for liberating me from the... From the uh, confines of Memorial Day to Labor Day. As you see, I am wearing a Madras shirt on the second day of fall. So, you know, this is... I think that's um, that's good. And, you know, uh, if I, I would hold up my feet to show you uh, the white shoes that I'm wearing, except that uh, uh, I'm just not that flexible and I'm not wearing white shoes. So, uh, great. Um, uh, Sarah, so I, I so you discussed the connection between tribalism and the ability to convince people in or out of one's own tribe, and I'm wondering to what extent uh, th that that's a problem uh, now that it may not have been say 20 or 30 years ago because uh, people are less and less willing at seeing or many people who are politically interested today are less and less willing to engage in good faith discussions. Yeah, but that's that's true. I think it's 100%. It's always been there. Tribalism's always been there. It's We call it tribalism because it's the thing that kept us safe from predators. You know, it's like hardwired into us. Um, but the, the thing that's changed is that now we can scream at each other anonymously behind little avatars on the internet and we can get madder and madder. We can find lots of misinformation. It's There's a lot fewer things that we collectively all do together as Americans. We don't all watch the Oscars or, you know, we're mad about football and people kneeling. Like, literally everything is political masks. Like, we couldn't handle a pandemic because we didn't, we couldn't come at something from the same, we couldn't all just come together. Uh, you know, going through the 9-11 remembrances, I was 
the thing that struck me the most was like that's probably the last time that we as a country all felt the same way about something you know 30 years ago fighting the cold war you know at some point we probably should all figure out how to all be mad at china together uh and 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 then stop trying to tear each other apart um and but 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 we don't we we for a variety of reasons um the tribalism's definitely gotten worse the negative polarity's de- never has never been worse and like a i don't even know it's been and i think since 2012 it's been at its absolute absolute worst um but like can you imagine a president having like 75 percent approval rating like your best hope is about 54, like 55. It's, I mean, the last president to have that high an approval rating, it didn't used to be that uncommon, was George W. Bush in the immediate wake of 9-11. And um, that's a, uh, a very, very particular circumstance. Can I, can we actually just like talk about this for a second? Because I was actually thinking it's around like the hundredth we're like right in between of like the hundredth anniversary of um, prohibition. And I was thinking about how a hundred years ago, we literally had the political capital to get like two thirds of two thirds of the house and the Senate to vote, to ban alcohol. And then three quarters of the state's legislatures to do it. And then to undo it again, like 12 years later, like, cause you know, I just, and I think that this is a, like, I just was thinking about it. it is, that is amazing. Like, I cannot believe that that actually happened. Um, and I just can't even imagine, like I was thinking about the ERA and how in fact, like they were only like two or three state legislatures away from the ERA being enacted before it ran the time ran out and then a few places like rescinded the vote um and so i just kind of i don't know like i just i'm like we're just we're just never gonna have that again like i just i guess not i don't know i actually don't believe we're never gonna have it again i think i think our polarization unity is a very fluid thing um and you know if you think about the 1790s is one of the most polarized eras in the country's history, uh, the first decade. And then within 15 years of that, we have the era of good feeling. Um, and that lasts for a remarkably short period of time, just sort of long enough to have a name. And then you're in the tensions over, you know, the Missouri Compromise. and. Um, and, you know, these are periods where you go from, uh, extre- you know, quite extreme polarization to great national unity in the space of, you know, a dozen years or so. Um, and I think it's, um, I think we we will emerge from this period of polarization uh, suddenly and in ways people don't expect for no better reason than we entered into it. Lisa, the floor is yours. Hey, I, I don't really have a question. I have a comment. That's the thing that people hate hearing. I, I just wanted to thank you, Sarah. You know, when you first came on in lieu of fun, my first response was, oh, God, a Republican. You know, I mean, I am a very tribal kind of a leftist. And, you know, 
I was brought up by Republicans, but I had, the Reagan administration damaged me. And so you have been so um, careful that yeah, you're such a careful thinker. You're such a, a caring person that you've really helped me kind of step outside my own tribalism. I still think the Trump people are insane, but um, at least you have made me understand the fact that that there's hope. So I really appreciate it. When are you going to run for president, Sarah Longwell? Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Unless, Uh, don't be a Republican or I won't be able to vote for you. uh, (laughs) To be fair, well, first of all, I just want to thank her for saying that. I've gotten a a couple of emails um, from people that I'm, like, printing out and taping to the wall to remind myself to be the person that they think I am in these emails (laughs) where they're saying, like, you know, you really like have hope for the world, and, what, and I guess I do. I mean, I, I'm and I'm glad that comes through. And I'll just just to go back to Ben's point a little bit. I have this half baked theory um, that I may have said this before, but I saw I just saw a tweet sometime that has really stuck with me. That is, um, this is uh, the internet did to our parents' brains what they told us television was going to do to us. And, <laughs> so true. And like, holy shit, that is good. Right? So like, that is and, so... And so like, ugh. no, no, I'm not trying to be like, I'm not trying to throw shade at, at uh, my elders uh, and my betters, but I would, I would make an argument that the, for people our age who are slightly more native to the internet um, and who grew up with it more, uh, who have a better feel for disinformation, what's right, you know, that there will be a time when we'll get past this point where, you know, Mike Flynn can go on a show and say uh, that the vaccination, the vaccine is going to get snuck into salad dressing and we're all going to get vaxxed by the government. That, that, that didn't happen. It did happen. And I got to say, I think it's right. Um, salad dressing is dangerous. And, um, you know, like we have not been talking enough about the salad dressing menace that our children face in this society. I would this, this is so like I tweeted about this when I saw it because I was like, you know, this isn't real because if the government was going to like sneak into Americans food, you know, the vaccine they wouldn't do it in broccoli. They're not going to do it in salad dressing. They're going to like like. Put it in chicken nuggets and beer and like no. pizza sauce. It's coming to you through salad dressing, Sarah. It, you know, I, you couldn't like Stanley Kubrick couldn't have put this into Doctor Strangelove. Um, uh, this guy was a general in our military. This guy was the this national guy was the security national security advisor. advisor of the United States. Yeah. Um, I don't understand. Like, we all know. But, like, but I mean, like, you say this, like, he was the national security advisor. He should know better. But, like, at this point, is there any, like, why do we even assume that? Why do we assume that, like, these people who hold this office have some, like, lock on, like, like well, well, rationality? That's not the point we're making. The, well, point, we're making. the yeah. point we're making is how, how crazy a person, how dangerous a person was in a role so important. Oh, okay. Well, that's true. Sorry. Okay. I was like, I so, thought it was the other way around. Got it. So before we wrap, though, Sarah, I got to ask you a question that has uh, come up in the chat while we've been talking, which is um, there has been a suggestion that I should run an advice column for fashion and relationships based on, A, my propensity for dog shirts 
and B, um, uh, the relationship advice that uh, I sometimes give on a French Village podcast. And so <laughs> the question is, would you run on the bulwark an advice column by me? Uh, for sure. A hundred percent. This is a great idea. Um, I will say I love. So the, the thing about the French Village podcast is like I totally have this sense of like, why did I do this to myself? It's a thousand episodes long. Like, I don't have time to do this podcast. And then every time I sit down with Ben and do it and we talk about the show and I'm done, I'm like, that was so fun. That was the most fun I've had all week. I love talking to Ben about this. Ben getting really amped up about like uh, the, the bad sex scene with the guy who was badly burned. That was a ter- <laughs> that was the worst moment in the whole French village. And I just want to give a Wait, shout out to Ave Goumont ah. who, who said... Uh, who described this as the gasp, rasping mummy sex. Um, it's great. Uh, what, what's, ha- what's happening? Oh, she doesn't, want, oh she doesn't want spoilers. She doesn't want spoilers. Um, I didn't know she was still watching it. Yes. Well, I had to stop because it got sad, like exceptionally sad, past like the, the being concerned about the bunny sad. Like, and so like real existential shit and so like i had to take a break but i am gonna watch it and pick it up again i do that with tv i like come back to it all right anyway all right the the the, uh question has been submitted to the audience um i i mean i will just want to say that like this is going to be the world's most fucking boring column ever because what's (laughs) going to happen is people are going to be like what should I wear? Should I wear this or dog that? Shirt. And you're just say dog shirt and then like move on to the next question and be like, be like, oh, like, what should I like? What should I do with this? Like this person like that I just met? Like, I don't know what and you'll be like. Slit his throat. I wasn't going to say that. I was going to say like, I was like woodworking or go for a long walk or go collect bugs together or like no, something the, weird. The, the relationship advice on the French Village podcast is almost always a response to people who make like radically bad decisions like after you've been tortured by somebody should, you know in front of your husband should you get back together with him <laughs> like like that should I date Nazis should I should I date Nazis there are pros there are cons. Um, yeah, I don't like. I don't know that I could do the the like more realistic relationship advice. Like, like we've been together for five years, and I don't know if he wants to get married. Like, if my question would be, well, is he SS? You know, because <laughs> <laughs> then you should definitely not marry him. Don't just don't wait around. <laughs> But like, if he's not SS, I don't know that I have strong feelings about it. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! That would be amazing. What would be really amazing is if we like we just like ha- posed questions from you from like World War II France and Germany, and like, and that was like the extent of your like of your of your metric was like whether or not he was SS. <laughs> it's not good. It's not good enough for a regular column. It is one McSweeney's article. Yeah, like, exactly. It's one McSweeney's. The best, you, the best advice column I've ever yes, seen though. was in the old Spy magazine, and it was called Ask the Nobelists. And 
people would write in and Spy Magazine would find some aged, like, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. And the person would write, you know, the most pedestrian advice. Well, it sounds like you've got a really pro real problem there. You might consider, like, and it would just say, like, you know, John Smith, Nobel Chemistry 1987. This is how I feel about fancy awards. It's like, it seems like such a big deal. And everyone still forgets you anyways. It's not that, like, eventually you're, like, you're alone. And it's just you and the people that you do podcasts with, really. Those <laughs> are your real people. Those are exactly. the real people. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. Sarah Longwell, you're a great American. Uh, it's a great podcast. It's called I'm The so Focus Group. For those of you who have not yet um, subscribed, I will not be doing an advice podcast or an advice uh, column. Um, but if uh, if anybody wants advice, you know, feel free. Maybe we should have an advice episode of In Lieu of Fun so that we can get Scott's advice and Kate's advice, too. And be like, cheese night, should I date an SS officer invading my town? <laughs> um we will be back tomorrow. I think we are doing, uh, we are, we're plotting a special series on the show, which is the hosts of the show, Play Where's the Lie. Kate's going to kick it off tomorrow. <laughs> I am? Thanks. I don't know. That's I've just Wait, announced it. Wait, are you it. starting Where's the Lie with a lie? Yeah, you can vote on it. Yeah. Um, Kate will be doing Where's the Lie tomorrow. Uh, and that'll be 23 hours exactly from now. And until then, Sarah, go rate my podcast. It really helps people find it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, we don't have fun anymore, but go rate Sarah's podcast on Apple Podcasts. That's where it really counts. Yeah, hold on. I'm gonna. I just dropped a, a link. Yeah, let's all do it all of a sudden together. I'll go do Ready? it right now. It'll yeah, really we're doing it right algorithm. now. We're doing it. Um, uh, wait, I'm, it doesn't stars. give me the option. Five stars. Um, I know, I'm not seeing the option either. Uh, you gotta open it on Apple Podcasts. Oh. And there we go, I have I have rated it. Um, okay, but you gotta write awesome. something. You gotta write, Sarah's oh the my best. Gosh. I am she totally writing something words. right now. Hang on, <laughs> hang on. Um, I'm not in S the SS. That's what I wrote. <laughs> write a review. Sarah... Longwell is a great American. Five go. stars. Like an Uber uh, driver. Wittis. Uh, I do one podcast <laughs> with Sarah Longwell. Ben. You should listen to this one. <laughs> I, really I do a different. That. that was very a, selfless. A different podcast with Sarah Longwell. You should listen to this one. There we go. All right. Whoa. Bye, guys. Wait, Bye, Sarah. I just want to... I got to tell you the follow-up to this. I use the nickname Wittis, and Apple Podcast informs me that the nickname is taken, which means there's an identity thief on... Or maybe uh, someone else has your last name. Like, like my wife is using Wittis. Okay. Somebody's... Posing as me. We will be back tomorrow.